All right, here we are. This is 20 Questions with Pastor Mike. I'm Pastor Mike, and the questions are coming from you guys. The first one we have today, before I tell you more about what this thing is, if you're a first-timer, the first question, let's just dig right in, and it comes from a person named Anonymous. And the question is, have you heard of the five-fold ministry way of thinking about apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers exercising those gifts today? And if so, what are your thoughts about this? Well, I do have some thoughts to share with you guys, and um, I know it's going to ruffle some feathers, and I'm okay with that. Um, that's not my intention, though. I just want to be honest, okay? And, and as I say these things, I, I want to remind you that I am not the perfect source of biblical knowledge. The Bible is the perfect source of biblical knowledge, but I'm going to give you the best answer I can, and I encourage you to weigh it and consider it and think about it. Don't just think, here's Mike's answer, therefore it's mine, but rather go on the journey with me of trying to trying to examine how I come to my answer. And I mean, critically think, is is Mike giving me a good, robust, biblical response to this thing, or are there other scriptures that might change your mind? Feel free to disagree with me, uh, because our goal here is to think biblically about everything, not just to... Um, think the way Mike thinks. You know, the way that when I say Bible thinkers in my ministry, that's because that's what I want to be, but it's also what I want you to be is a Bible thinker. All right, so question one is about this verse right here, Ephesians chapter four, verses 11 through 13. Let me just read it to you. And then I'll tell you how those, in, some, only some in the charismatic movement, only some, because like I'm, I, I don't do this and the people I've been involved with don't do this, but some in the charismatic movement take this, and talk about something called a five-fold ministry. So here it says, speaking of Jesus, he gave some to be apostles, um, or excuse me, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So let me give it to you the way that I hear it used from those who hold to what they call fivefold ministry. They say, you know, there's these five groups. They usually say five, some people say four. And here they are, they're listed here. Okay, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds or pastors and teachers. And these five groups are supposed to equip the church and there's an until, until we all attain to, the, to this unity of the faith, this maturity, this incredible stature of the fullness of Christ. And then the, the case goes like this. Look, the church has not yet entered verse 13. We, we're not yet that, that strong. We're not yet that unified. We're not yet that mature. We don't have the fullness of the stature of Christ and all that. And so we still need all five of these ministry things to function. We need not just pastors teachers, evangelists, we also need apostles and we need a pro we need prophets, modern apostles and modern prophets. I'm going to focus on the apostles part today. And that's how the reasoning works. And um, I want to say what happens next is they'll then offer long, detailed teachings of what apostles do in the church today and what their role is in the church because most churches don't have any ap apostolic role. They have nobody who's called an apostle. And so what they'll do is they'll try to like carve out a place in the organizational structure of a church where apostles fit. And um, it gets fuzzy. And, and depending on who you talk to, if, if you talk to one person whom I, I love and respect, but I think I disagree on, on this topic somewhat with Dr. Michael Brown, um, then you're going to get one definition of apostle here. If you talk to like C. Peter Wagner and the people who were part of his NAR, sort of you know, his movement, then you're going to get a different, very different definition of apostle that has a lot more authority and a lot more like dogmatic control. Um, 
but but is it biblical is 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 it justified is this verse in ephesians really telling us that there are supposed to be apostles in the churches throughout time and i think the answer is no not really and here's here's my reasoning um yes apostles prophets evangelists shepherds and teachers are going to equip the saints right and that's going to continue we're still being equipped i would say even by those apostles prophets but how do they do it is it because there's successors you know there's continuing apostles that are active in the church today as as the mormons would say as the roman catholics would actually say as as the um sort of some charismatics would say um i don't even know if it's the majority prob probably the minority I'm, I'm not sure but i think if you look at ephesians and you look at the task we look at verse chapter 2 verse 20 same book so it's giving us context this is where apostles and prophets comes up again in the same book it says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. That's interesting because that means that the church itself has a foundation and that foundation was laid by the apostles and prophets in their work and Jesus himself is the cornerstone. But now we're being built. That implies that the apostles and prophets have a different function than the pastors, teachers, and evangelists. And probably in that verse in Ephesians 4, pastor, teacher is one thing. You think of it as more of a hyphenated thing, pastor, teacher. That's how the ESV has it. Um, these are pastors who teach, right? Not pastors on one hand, teachers on another. Not that there can't be a variety of different people with different types of gifts and stuff like that. The body of Christ has tons of variety. All I'm saying is Ephesians 4.13, uh, sorry, Ephesians 4.11 um, through 13. I don't think that this gives us justification for saying that we're supposed to have modern apostles in the body of Christ today. I don't think so. I think that that verse doesn't do that. So then... There's a problem there because there's a whole apostolic movement going on that uses this verse in Ephesians to justify modern, you need apostles in your fellowship. And they'll say, they'll be nice about it. They'll say things like, oh, well, many of your pastors are already apostles. You're just not calling them apostles. But it doesn't seem like Ephesians 4 gives us that since Ephesians seems to talk about an initial work that in the church is being built upon and that work we find in the New Testament. Now, let me talk about Paul, because Paul was an apostle in a very special sense, just like the 12 were. He's, he wasn't one of the 12, but he was an apostle similar to them. But he talks about it, and the question we're going to ask is this. Is the, is the apostolic office in the church something that's meant to be continual and ongoing? Or is it an initial grounding phase that then you, you build on afterwards? And I'm going to suggest that it's not continual and ongoing. That's that's where I lean. That's what I think is correct biblically. Here's a couple reasons. Um, first, the Ephesians 4 passage doesn't say as much as some people want it to say. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about this again. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And he gives the gospel. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then he appeared to the twelve. Now the twelve are, are all apostles, right? The twelve are apostles. Um, here the phrase twelve, there were only eleven at the time. It's being used as a nickname for this group of special men that Jesus had appointed, right? They're the apostles. But Paul goes on to say, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at once, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, which implies more than the twelve. There's more apostles than just the twelve right? Then, then that category of the, those, those, those men. James is actually called an apostle in scripture, and it's important that he appeared to James. 
Um, there's all the apostles. And my theory is, my understanding, is that the people that we see called apostles in the New Testament, like Barnabas, Paul himself, they all had a direct appearance of Christ. Most of them, they saw him during that 40 days. He appeared to people. He commissions more than just the 12. These people are carry an apostolic authority to lay the groundwork of the gospel, but that's a temporary task. I'll explain what happens to their role. How does their role still take place in the church in just a second? But then we go on and Paul says this, last of all, remember that phrase, last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. Last of all what? Of all the apostles. Paul's an apostle. He calls himself an apostle like a dozen times in scripture. He's like, I'm, I'm like, it, this seems to read plainly, I'm the last apostle. And I'm, I'm born out of time. I'm born unlike all the others. I came to Christ later. I had a special visitation from Christ. But he's the last one. Now this he writes many, many years after his actual conversion. His conversion happened in the 30s. And he's writing this in the 50s. So it's like 20 years go by. And he calls himself... What happened about 20 years prior, he calls that the last of the apostles. That's the context here. For I'm the least of the apostles. He's the last because he's the least. Unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But I am, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And Paul here is quoting Popeye, of course, as we all know. Um, so what I'm going to suggest here is that the apostles, my understanding of this, and I'll go to the next question because I, I, I tend to spend a little longer on the first question, but the apostles themselves, they, they were the 12, but there was others as well. They all had an appearance of Christ. Elsewhere, Paul appeals to this. He, he describes the fact that he's an apostle and he's like, haven't I seen Jesus? Now, this has led some people to try to justify their claim to be an apostle to tell stories of their own visitation of Christ, as if that means they're an apostle. What I'm suggesting, though, is we have at least some evidence from the New Testament here that about 20 years goes by and Paul calls that moment 20 years ago, the last of the apostles. That's a long time to not have the appointment of any new apostles, if that's the task, if, if we're supposed to always be having apostles in the church. Rather, I think what happened is the way the apostles function is they lay the foundation. That foundation is now found in scripture. The New Testament is the foundation that was laid by the apostles and prophets. That's the ongoing work of the apostles in the church is through the scriptures, through the New Testament in particular. That is the work of the apostles, the grounding, the foundation. It's right there. It's the Bible. This is why when they were canonizing the Bible, trying to figure out, I should say that's the wrong term. They were figuring out what texts God had canonized because they were just trying to just determine what God had done, not make it happen. They were really concerned that each one of the books that they brought into and acknowledging this is, this is New Testament scripture. They were really concerned that these were apostolic, either written by an apostle or, or written by somebody who got their data from an apostle. So this is the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. It's from the apostles. So I think the apostles had a grounding work, foundation work. That's recorded in scripture. And we don't have any reason to think that they're in this ongoing thing today. Now, the word apostle also means, I'll briefly mention, the word apostle also means one who is sent. And there's even scripture, let me see if I'll find, find one for you, that talks about people who are just they're apostles in the sense that they're just ones who are sent. But that's because it's just in Greek, the word is used for more than just the religious connotation of like one of Jesus' special chosen ones, right? Here's an example. I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. That word is apostolon, actually. And it's translated messenger because the translators are saying, and I think they're right here, 
yeah, the word apostles used, but it's used in the generic sense, not in the special sense appeared from, you know, to Jesus appeared to them and they have like this authority to lay the groundwork of the gospel. I tend to think this, this thing of apostles is over. It, it's, it's the work, the foundation they laid continues in the church, but it's found in the text of scripture, not in an ongoing office of an apostle. That would be my opinion. Some would say that apostles are, are just missionaries because missionaries are sent out. And I'm like, fine, if you want to use that term. But they're apostle with like a lowercase a then. And they're not like the kind of apostle that we see um, in Paul or in Peter or in one of those guys. So that's that answer. I'm going to go to your guys' other questions. And here we go. This is going to be from Sierra Laird, who says, The Bible stresses the importance of unity within the body of Christ. When does competition among believers, even seemingly friendly competition, games, sports, etc., become unhealthy? Thank you. Um, I th I think my simple answer here is going to be when when it's no longer grounded in love. There's a there's a type of competition that is I feel I'm just going to speak from personal experience here that I feel is grounded in love, and you enjoy it. And this is where you can still be happy when you lose. Because you're not coveting the win. Even though you're trying, you're doing your best, you're competing. But you're okay if the other person wins. Um, you don't want them to do worse. You just want to try to do your best. I guess that would be a, a way to put it. I'm not looking for him to fail. I just want to try to do my best. And I could look at our um, competition among believers. Like let's say you're playing games as an enjoyable thing. But the minute the minute you, you rage quit, you are definitely not in a healthy place. The minute that you're irritated and your your relationship with the person you're competing with is broken instead of strengthened, then the flesh is getting in the mix there. Because there's a competition that can strengthen. But this requires godly people. This requires people, in my opinion, that are very godly. Now, as a youth pastor for many years, I've seen countless kids playing video games and enjoying time together. And we would do team games all the time. Every Friday, we do hangout, we do games. We even did pizza Every Friday we did pizza. We also did like theology and apologetics and stuff. Every Friday night I would do a Q&A with the kids. Kind of what I do with you guys. A little your, your questions are a little different usually. At any rate, um, we, um, we would often have team games and, and the kids would be on a team and say I'm on their team and our team's losing. And I always try to take this as an opportunity to say, hey, so we're, our teams are imbalanced. Their team's better than our team. I'm like, but here's a lesson we can learn. You just, you enjoy doing your best and you think me doing my best is worth it, even if it doesn't seem to succeed. That's like a life lesson about faithfulness, right? I'm just going to do my best and not compete in that sense of, of, of tr my competition to do my best. I, I'll give you another example. I had a kid who was in football, a high school student, and he was really upset because that he lost, his football team lost the game. And I asked him, how was your game though? How was your personal game? Did you do your best? Did you play your hardest? And he goes, yeah. And I said, well, then you won. You didn't win the other team, but you won your game, your fight of just doing your, your best, playing your hardest. So in a sense, competition is a great way to find out how much carnality is going on. Um, healthy competition builds relationships instead of destroying them, and it strengthens those things. Yeah, there's a couple of thoughts. Um, I'm basing this all off of um, don't seek what's your own, seek what's others. That way I could rejoice in the other person winning. I'm like, good job. I mean, no, it feels great to have that victory. Good for you. Yeah. All right, um, Hannah, oh, next question. Before I go there, before I go there, I just want to mention, we do have the new Bible Thinker mugs if anybody wants these. I'm not making any money off this, but 
the, most of it goes to the potter. That's his business. This is how the, he makes his living. But Brent Zockel's like a big fan of the ministry, and he's reached out. And at least for now, it's probably a temporary thing. I'm not going to do this every month for the rest of my life. But but for now, we've got a new, um, still kind of new um, Bible Thinker design, and the old one's still available. Five bucks in the month of June, five dollars per each of these mugs will be going to help a ministry that um, takes care of um, refugees um, who were driven out of their homes from by ISIS from Syria into Jordan. And um, yeah. All right. Next question, number three. This is from Hannah Scarlett Smith. Hey, Mike, can you define fundamental Christianity for me? Recently, I've been seeing it referred to as a negative thing. Is it? Ooh, good question. Um, so the term I usually hear isn't fundamental Christianity, but fundamentalism or fundamentalist. Um, and usually it's used in a derogatory sense. So you're, you're a, oh, you're a fundamentalist. And what we, what we often mean by that, there's, I think there's two very different definitions of this term, but let's, let's go with the derogatory one first. What's often meant by that is you have rigid and inflexible opinions that you haven't really thought through very deeply. And so you, you have like, um, like, let me give you an example. Here's my, my, uh, my wedding ring. My wedding ring's not gold. It's actually made of, um, uh, carbide and then, uh, some space ceramic stuff, some kind of cool spacey ceramic stuff. It's, it's, it's the kind of ring a guy would like. And, um, it's, it's, it's extremely hard, but it's also rigid. Like it doesn't bend. If it was put under pressure, it would just break into pieces. It was, it would take quite a lot of pressure to do that. But it doesn't bend like gold. Gold will bend and then bend back. So the fundamentalist is seen often as having a faith kind of like that. That it's, the beliefs are very, very hard, very inflexible, very rigid. Now that's not necessarily bad al already. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna fault them for that. But here's the part of fundamentalism that that has taken on this real negative connotation: is that those beliefs that are hard and fundamental and rigid, those beliefs are not necessarily informed by scripture. They're a lot informed by traditions of man, and they can't tell the difference. So this is a person who, for instance, um, they hear somebody say, um, they're, they're typically called, by the way, they're typically, the fundamentalist is typically, but not always, typically like a, um, a, a strong inerrantist, which I am, by the way, <laughs> typically a young earth creationist, and they really hold equally fast to all of the views of their local congregation. So the major views, the minor views, they're all like, boom, rigidly held to. The criticism of the fundamentalist is that they perhaps aren't willing to look at things like other other works from the time of the Bible to examine what genre, say, what, what genre is Genesis 1 through 11? Like that question to them is so offensive that they feel like you're preaching a false gospel. That's kind of the like, attack against fundamentalists. Um, often a fundamentalist, when they when they change their mind on one doctrine, that they say, oh, I guess, I guess maybe um maybe um maybe the flood was local instead of global. And they think that. They they come to think the flood had to have been local instead of global and they just abandon the whole Christian faith. So there's that rigidness. There's like it just cracks and breaks to pieces. Now on the other side I'm not saying their beliefs are wrong. It's just how they're held and the fact that tradition is held there without, without real same rigidity. Um, on the other side, there is something that I would consider to be fundamentalist that's positive and good and I want to identify myself with. See, the fundamental, the fundamental, the word fundamentals could refer to simply the essentials of the Christian faith. And, I, and in that sense, I'm a fundamentalist because I'm, I hold to the essentials. Like, guess what is rigid and immovable? In my faith, there's many doctrines. Like 
the death and resurrection of Christ, rigid and, and immovable. Like he died on the cross for my sins and he rose again from the dead bodily. Like if that, if that cracks, that my faith is gone. And like there's no Christianity without that. But if, if, um, if you were to say like, so, I mean, I'm giving you an example here. I don't believe. Okay. But if you were to say, um, that you prove to me that the Bible's not inerrant, I'm not going to abandon my faith because that to me is not, it, it is important, but it's not the fundamental so there's a positive fundamental side where I hold to essential Christian truths and I'm and I'm not like the liberal progressive Christian who just reinvents Christianity with no concern as to whether it's actually accurate or not, quotes everything out of context and just makes a self-serving religion. Like, no, I want to follow Christ, but I want to be maybe in that middle ground somewhere. So yeah, is it a bad thing? Um, uh, it can be. It depends. It depends. Kind of have to take each issue one at a time. I don't know. I hope that helps, Hannah. Uh, Matthias... Uh, Matthews, Matthews, maybe Fernandez says, hi, Mike, Brazilian subscriber here. My question is, if the wages of sin is death, why do animals die? It also involves the extinction of the dinosaurs. Why would God create them to be exterminated? Okay, so I'm going to give you some thoughts on this. Um, if the wages of sin is death, why do animals die? Um, I don't think in scripture animals are actually included in the phrase. Well, let me be more careful. The wages of sin is death, but that has to do with human sin. The wages of human sin is death. We're not, animals are not being talked about directly. Now, indirectly, animals, they don't die because of their sin, right? But Romans 8 does talk about animals a little bit more clearly, I think. So let me um, find the passage here and share it with you guys. Animals, I think, are they, they get brought down. They fall with us. They fall with us but we're the ones falling because we are given dominion over the animals, over the earth, and it falls with us, so to speak. But let's, but the timing of all that is interesting. Okay. So, um, here in Romans eight, um, scripture talks about how the Holy spirit helps us when we, when we're groaning, um, when we're, when we're, um, when we don't know how to pray for as we ought and our hearts are broken, the Holy Spirit's there to intercede for us. And this is all about how like we are, um, currently suffering and we need help. We're still in, we're still in a fallen, fallen world and we're still experiencing pain and suffering as a result of the rebellion against God. But then Paul shifts and talks about all of creation and he talks about it groaning too, it's suffering too. And it talks about why. So um, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And in verse 19 of Romans 8, for the creation waits with eager, eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation is waiting. There's something wrong in creation and that's going to be fixed when, when we're revealed as the sons of God or rather when Jesus returns and sets up his final kingdom. For the creation was subjected to futility. That would be animals dying. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. The creation, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So in a sense, creation falls with us and then rises with us. The whole creation has been groaning together in the, in the pains of childbirth until now. So um, my interpretation of this is that the, the, the corruption we see in creation relates to the fall of mankind. Now, as far as the timing of that, uh, I think that this text isn't giving you the timing. It's giving you the reason. 
right? The, not the chronological timing of when exactly did bad things start happening first in each element of creation, but rather it's giving you, it's focusing on the reason for it. Animals are dying as part of the, the, the lesson we're learning in this temporary world to trust God, to turn from sin, to see the corruption that exists in a godless world. And then there will be a redemption for the world along with the redemption of the children of God. There's a new heaven and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. So yeah, and as far as dinosaurs, um, why would God create them to be exterminated? These are interesting questions, but I want to start with humility and just recognize this. Um, we, we're sometimes presumptuous. I'm not saying, Methus, that you are. Okay, look, I'm, I don't know you. You asked like one sentence, right? So, But we're sometimes presumptuous about these types of questions. We almost assume that we're supposed to know the answers to questions where maybe we shouldn't assume too much. Like, it's kind of like saying... Um, why don't, uh, like, like take an example of, okay, there's a forest fire and an animal dies in a forest fire. And I think to myself, why, why did that happen? There seems to be no purpose for that that I can think of. Therefore, there is no purpose. That conclusion, there's no reason I can think of. Therefore, there is no reason. That's a little arrogant now. There's a principle called noceum that I'll teach you. And it, it's, I think it was named after these little, these little gnat bugs that you can't, you can't see them very well, but they bug you anyways. But the idea is we should be aware of the limits of our perceptions. So, for instance, you know, when, when I'm, I'm, I'm farsighted, when I hold something real close, like this close, it's blurry. Even with my glasses on, that's just blurry. I don't say, because it's blurry to me when I hold it this close, therefore it must be illegible if it's writing. Say I hold it up. Oh, it must be illegible because it's blurry to me. Because I realize there's a limit I have. I'm just not perceiving the writing doesn't mean it's not there. You're asking a question about the dinosaurs being extinct and for specific reasons for that, we're just guessing. I wouldn't expect from this distance to be able to perceive all that God is doing in that in that environment. So I can guess and I can say like Hugh Ross would say, oh, well, the whole, um, he would point to like different types of bacteria and um, maybe even like modern day fossil fuels and stuff like that and say, look, if those extinctions didn't happen, human civilization wouldn't be able to exist the way it does. Okay, well, that may be true. That may be true. Um, that would be that would be like Hugh Ross's explanation for that. At least I think off the top of my head that that's something he would uh, punt to or lean to. So that may well be the case. Um, but I think more importantly, what I want to emphasize is it's okay if you don't know why something happened a long time ago. Like, I don't know why God would do that, and I didn't expect to know. So it shouldn't stumble you or hinder you or cause you to question your faith or something like that. That would be like me saying something's illegible just because I'm holding it so close I can't read it. Um, all right, let's go to the next one. This is from Jackson Starrett, who says, if using the morality argument, if using the morality argument, how would you respond to an unbeliever that uses the objection that morality is subjective and there's no real objective moral right or wrong? So um, I've had this question a number of times, not, not just online, but from uh, students as well and people I've been talking to. I think the moral argument is one of the most powerful arguments from God. For those who don't know it, it basically says, look, if there's, a, I'm going to give a very crude example for the sake of time, but it basically says, look, if there's, if there's moral truth, if, the, if it's really wrong to do that, like if torturing babies for fun is truly bad in every, you know, whether whether people agree or not, right? Even if all the world agrees that it's okay to do it, it's still wrong. If that's true, if it's still wrong, then that means that there's got to be some moral lawgiver. Like morals have to come from something, be grounded by something, and that something is God. 
because God is good. And so God's goodness gives us grounded morality and um, God's revelation gives us knowledge of that morality so that we're not just doing what makes society work. There's actually right and wrong beyond just what makes society function well or prosper in a sense. Um, and I think it's an incredibly powerful argument for God's existence because it appeals to such a strong common notion of, of moral right and wrong. Now, what do I do with the person who says, well, there is no moral right and wrong. It's all subjective. I think the person's probably lying. Um, I'm being very honest here. Not, ev not in every case. Some people really believe there's no moral right or wrong. I think very often, though, people say it in an argument to just get one over on you. And in that case, what do you do with somebody who will lie to you in an argument? You A, move on, or B, point out the lie. So we had a, we had, on a Friday Q&A back, back in the youth ministry years ago, we had a student who was saying, I was talking about this moral issue, and he says, well, I don't think there's anything wrong. With, with, and I said, so you think nothing's wrong with stealing? And he goes, no, nothing's wrong with stealing. And so I asked him if I could see his, uh, was it his cell phone or his wallet? His cell phone, I think. I said, can I see your cell phone? And he was like suspicious of me, obviously. But he ended up handing me his cell phone and I put it in my pocket and said, I'm going to keep it. And he goes, you can't do that. You're a pastor. And I said, but you just told me nothing's wrong with stealing. So is it that you don't want me to do it? Or is it that something's actually wrong with it? And he says, no, it's wrong. It's wrong. And I said, here, and obviously I wasn't going to keep his phone. I was trying to give him a real life example that would help him see that he doesn't really believe this. He's lying to get out of this moral argument that's pointing to God. So you might try to try that, like give them examples and be like, so if, if somebody went to your home with a, a knife and s s slew your family, stabbed them and killed your family, would you just not like it? Or would you think it was morally wrong? And if they're honestly saying, I would just not like it. Then I want to say, you are denying reality. Every bone in your body is telling you it's morally wrong. Your perceptions are pushing it at you. And anything that in him, William Lane Craig talks about this as well. He talks about the moral argument. And he suggests that anybody who says, I'm going to ignore all of these sensors firing off that are telling me that morality is real, that there's objective moral values and duties. Anybody says, I'm going to ignore all that. You could, you could, for the same reasons, you could get them to ignore everything they know. You could get them to ignore that they're even existing, they're even a person, that this conversation's happening, that, that their words make any sense. Because we have very strong moral intuitions. And now some think that's a weak thing. Oh, it's just intuitions. But when you really boil it down, that's pretty much where all of us start, with just a bunch of intuitions. I sure seem to be a real person. I sure seem to be having actual interaction with the things around me. I, I sure seem to have rational thoughts. And then the question is, how do I explain those things? But they just seem to be the case. And that's where we start. So th there's a couple thoughts there. I hope that helps. You can dig in more. Tons of resources. Um, C.S. Lewis had a great way of talking about the moral argument, a way that I think helps the every man real well. If you want to talk about it in a deep philosophical fashion, there's um, a variety of other people you could look at as well. Um, number six, and there's no more questions. We've got all 20 questions for today. No more, but I'm going to blast through the ones we do have, and hopefully you will find these answers helpful. Um, the goal here is to think biblically. And by the way, I'll mention this. I'm going to go back to number five briefly. Um, speaking of thinking biblically, when it comes to the moral argument, the reason why this argument works with scripture is because scripture says not just that we have to have God to have good. Okay, it does say that God is good, like he's the good. So it's consistent with the moral argument. The biblical definition of God is consistent with that. Whereas 
pagan definitions of God lead to something called the Euthyphro dilemma that causes problems for their, their view of morals. But there's something else, which is that God has simply made us aware. Romans 1, 2, and 3, he simply made us aware of right and wrong. So when I go out preaching and talk about the moral argument leading to God, I'm taking advantage of what Romans says about the nature of people individually. They know right from wrong. Even if it's skewed, even if our, val our understanding of morals is a little off, we know what's right from wrong, and then we're using that. And what's cool about this is the second you get someone to believe that mor moral, the moral argument leads to a perfectly good God, you just lead right to the issue of sin because there is a perfectly good God now that you know about and you have sinned. It just, it just leads right into the issue of sin, which leads you right to the gospel of Christ. All right, number six, Sarah Peterson has a question. When someone is angry at God, are they able to bring that to God or do they wait until they are, are not angry and then go to God? Do we have to be 100% before talking with God so as, as to not disrespect him? Um, you do not have to get, wait till your anger is gone. You just have to, in your anger, not sin. That's what Ephesians tells us. Let me take us to that verse because I think it applies here. Um, da, 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 da. So Ephesians 4.26. In this passage, we have instruction, a bit general instructions for the church, right? Um, having put away falsehood, speak truth with his, your neighbors or members of another. Verse 26 of Ephesians 4, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So, okay, be angry and do not sin. Let me quick overview of this verse. This is when you're angry, when you're feeling angry, don't sin. Next, don't let the sun go down on your anger, which is to say, don't let that anger fester in you because old anger turns into bitterness, which turns into malice and sort of this revenge is the dish best served cold treatment towards others where you just start leaking your bitterness out in a bunch of little ways, even though it wasn't an outburst of anger. So yeah, in, when you're angry, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, so don't hold on to it. Why? Because this is going to give opportunity to Satan. He's going to mess with your life. He's going to ruin your relationships. He's going to hurt your walk with God. He's going to lead you into sin because in anger, man, it's so easy to do to sin, to respond wrongly, to respond rudely. Uh, look at road rage, uh, rage quitting, ra you know, put rage into anything you're doing and it's going to cause problems. Now, when it comes to prayer, I think Psalms is the example for us here. Psalms is an example of people pouring their hearts out to God but never accusing God of wrong. Never accusing God of wrong. An example of this, an example of this could be even Psalm 22. We're going to talk about this briefly, but this is the Psalm Jesus quotes on the cross. But look, look at, um, look at the context as it was written. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? This is crying out to God in great despair. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Now that could sound like anger, but I don't think it's anger. I think it's desperation. Lord, I'm crying, but you haven't helped me and it hurts. But but don't you dare just quote verses one and two and forget that verse three is there. Yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. Here the psalmist could be flirting with saying something wrong about God or maybe even saying something true. He's crying out, but he hasn't been getting help yet. And that's true. But he stops himself. And before he continues to talk about his suffering, he just pauses in verse three and says, you know what? I just want to acknowledge God, you are holy. 
you're holy. I'm not impugning your holiness. I'm not suggesting something's wrong with what you're doing. I'm just telling you how I'm, what I'm going through and how it hurts me and how I'm struggling. But I am also acknowledging your goodness and holiness. And that's my counsel for those of you that pray. If you feel like you're angry at God, here's you, Lord, I feel forsaken. I feel like I'm being left alone in this, but I acknowledge you're still good. You are still good. Your plan is still there. I trust you. I praise you. This happens over and over in the book of Psalms. I mean, the Psalms that are the darkest will almost always end. There's like one exception I can think of, and that's for messianic reasons. I'll talk about this sometime. Um, or maybe I already did. I don't remember. <laughs> but um, but they'll almost always end with this, yet I will still praise you. Yet I will still praise God. And I think those, those Psalms are very powerful. Um, let me give you... Um, one more example. Psalm 13. This one's very short. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? This could sound like he's angry, like he's accusing God of doing wrong, but he's not. He's not. He's just, he's expressing his true feelings, but not just expressing feelings. That could turn into just venting for the sake of venting, but rather he's talking about the situation. Lord, here I am. I'm, I'm, I'm seeking you. I'm asking for your help and I'm not getting it. Not, not yet. Not the way I hope for. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O God. Light up my eyes. O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I've prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. Can you feel the angst and the hardship? And I'm sure anger is mixed in there somewhere. But verse 5, look at how he ends. But... I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he's dealt bountifully with me. This isn't, he's not yet delivered, but he's going to praise God anyways because he will be delivered. He's going to rejoice in God's salvation that he hasn't even experienced yet. He's going to trust in God's steadfast love, even though he doesn't, he's not cognizantly feeling it right now because he knows it's true. It's a fact of who God is. The Psalms gives you a great example of how to deal with these things. Don't accuse God of wrong. Just express your heart and then choose to trust in him. Um, tell him how you're feeling, but not in an accusatory fashion. That'd be my counsel. There's those who say, oh, God can take it. God can take it. Look, I don't know what that means. God can take it. God can take anything. God can take me blaspheming the name of Christ if he wants. I, but that doesn't mean it's okay. So these this way of counseling people, you know, pray as angry as you want. Shake your fist at God. Call him names if you want. God can take it. Like, this is not biblical. This is dangerous. The Psalms gives us our good example here. And in the Psalms, we don't see it. If you want to see an example of somebody who almost rages about God, it's in the book of Job. And at the end of Job, God rebukes Job. And then Job says, boy, was I stupid. I spoke words without knowledge. And he repents of it. And so there's your example of that. I've heard that counsel and it's it, it's really unwise. Um, all right, number seven, Jared Christian Bailing says, Hi, Pastor Mike. What do you think of the view that states in John 15, Jesus actually said in Greek that those who don't bear fruit are lifted up instead of cut off? Is this us practicing bad Greek? Okay, I'm, I'm going to give a few thoughts. Let me just first explain the issue. So in John 15, you guys are often familiar with this passage. It takes us off sideways a little bit when you read it because you go, it's this beautiful thing about abiding in Jesus, right? I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. 
abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides. Um, now, that phrase, he takes away, that's the ESV, ESV, right? Let's look at, say, the NASB. He says, um, every branch that in me does not bear fruit, he takes away. Let's see, in Ivy. Um, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. So they take, he cuts off instead of he takes away. Um, New King James. Um I, I keep forgetting to line it up. What if I just do this? There we go. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. But do you notice the footnotes? There's footnotes right here. And you can't see it. I don't know why it doesn't show up on your screen. But the footnote here says, or lifts up. Or lifts up. Now, this is a word that can mean to lift up or to take away. And if you're dealing with a vine and you're dealing with... um you know, pruning and cleaning up and stuff like that. It, it could be a farmer goes over and he sees that one of the branches is like hanging down in the mud. And so he puts a stick under it and he lifts it up. And he's like, hey, you're in me. You're a branch in me, but you're just not bearing fruit. You're in the world. You're in the mud of the world. This is the preaching point you probably will hear. You're kind of in the mud. You're with the world. You're not bearing fruit. You're in Christ. You're saved. But so he, he props you up, puts a stick under you, so to speak. And then that causes you to bear fruit. Right. So every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he lifts up. And then there's a debate in, about the Greek. Um, well, which one is it? Is he taking it away, which implies you're like, you're out of me. You're not going to be in Christ. You're not going to be saved. Or is he lifting it up? And um, I don't remember the whole debate on this, but I'll tell you my, my current opinion is that takes away seems more accurate. Takes away seems more accurate. Um, let me see. There's a, there's context here a little bit later on. I'm the vine that might help with that. I'm the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. All right. Um, so the question is verse six, the people that don't abide in him, are they the same ones that in verse two, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And that's, that's I guess that's the debate. Are there three categories or two categories? People who abide in Jesus and bear fruit. People who abide in don't bear fruit. Maybe they're lifted up. And then people who don't abide and they're thrown out. I go back and forth on this issue. I, I guess I can't resolve it for you. Um, sometimes I think it's he takes away. Part of me is aware that I want it to say he lifts up. I want it to be the lift up analogy. And so I'm almost like resisting going that route unless I have good, good reason to think it. And um, yeah, so anyway, there's a couple things to think about. I'm sorry, I don't have the final answer for you on that one. Number eight, Chilling Hedgehog says, when I was an atheist, I got depressed and actually plans to end my life to escape all its struggles. I know now uh, that God exists, but I can't be grateful for being created. How do I repent from that? Hmm. So, so from what I'm hearing, I'm piecing together Chilling Hedgehog. Um, it's interesting to give serious advice and counsel on deep issues to the YouTube names that we all choose for ourselves. So, um, that, but that's set aside, Chilling Hedgehog. Um, very serious issue. It sounds like when you were, before you were saved, you were, you were dealing with this idea of the disparity of life and you'd even considered suicide. Now you're... Uh, you, you, it doesn't say you're a Christian. It says you know God exists. So I don't know if you're actually a believer in Christ. And obviously, I think that would help 
That doesn't mean it's going to fix every weird, wrong thought we have in our head, but I think it helps because there's hope in Christ that can help be the salve for the issues you're going through. Um, you say, how, how, do, how can I be grateful for being created? I think that I'll give a couple things here. And man, I hope that this council helps. Um, obviously, there's there's wrong thinking going on in your head. I don't mean that as an insult, okay? Please don't take it that way. There's wrong thinking that goes on in my head too. And sometimes it helps when I just say, uh, I, I, I don't know how to change my thinking, but I know it's wrong, right? I know it's wrong. You know, if you were taking a test and you knew you had the wrong answer, you would at least not put the wrong answer, right? Like you might not know the right answer, but you at least you don't put. So here you're not settling on that thinking. You're not accepting that thinking. You're telling yourself, I'm going to filter my thoughts here. And I'm going to say my opinion of being ungrateful for my very existence. There's something wrong there. I don't know what it is. I just know that it's wrong. Also, let me say this. You're in a temporary situation right now. Like we, we tell this to kids. You'll When you're older, you'll understand. When you're older, you'll get it. And it's so funny how much patience I have now compared to when I was in like third grade. Like my patience compared to, th when I was in third grade, patience was waiting like five minutes for something, right? Patience is waiting like an hour. I mean, waiting a day, it may as well be forever away. Wait a week? Oh my goodness, forget it. Like what's the point? Why, why, why even consider what's gonna happen a week from now? Now, I don't mind waiting years for things. I have a different perspective now about my life. And I'm just suggesting that just like children just don't get it when it comes to patience, seeing their life as a season, knowing that, you know, things are going to be very different later on. We often, even now are the same way that your life is just a season and that there is eternal, if you're in Christ, okay. And I, I plead with you to turn to Christ if you have not put your faith in Jesus. But if, if you're in Christ, your eternal glory awaits, eternal. And if all you can say is, look, I may not feel it now, but I happen to know this, that this is a temporary pain and I have eternal joys forever. This is worth it. Whatever suffering I'm in now, whatever temporary situation, absolutely worth it. Like Paul says that the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed. There is no comparison. No matter how, and things get dark, things get really bad in this, in this life and in this world. Not even worthy to be compared to what's coming. That I think might help because you, you just realize I'm in a season, man. This is a season. This is a test. This is a time of refining. This is a time of character development. This is a time of teaching me to depend upon Christ. And none of that is fun, but it's all so eternally valuable. And I hope that that would help. How do you repent from it? Um, let me just say, being grateful is sometimes a decision. Feeling grateful is what you hope for when you make the decision to be grateful. Lord, thank you for that. And now I hope I also in my emotions will come alongside and feel that more. But you can choose to be grateful, which means you're giving thanks. You're appreciating things verbally and expressing that. Um, sometimes you don't feel it, but you just choose to put that on, that behavior on. So I would focus on the behavior and then let slowly your your internal gratefulness will, will turn to uh, come around after a while. Catch yourself when you're complaining about things. Tell yourself, like, as soon as I'm complaining about something, I'll stop and I'll, I'll say thanks for something instead. That's a good habit to get into and it might help break the cycle a bit. All right, let's move to the next one. Number nine, Jesse Crocus says, talking about prayer, I've heard many people say that praying to God should be more of a dialogue than a monologue. 
isn't the Lord's Prayer spoken by Jesus a monologue? How should we pray then? Yeah, you know, Jesse, I, I've thought the same thing. Um, people will talk about like listening in prayer and how prayer is, even that phrase, more of a dialogue than a monologue. Um, I don't think so. Um, prayer is you talking to God, right? <laughs> so prayer is not God talking to you. Prayer is not that. Um, now, at the same time, I want to say, and I'm looking at biblical examples of prayer. Generally speaking, prayer is one, is is unidirectional as far as the information goes. I am expressing prayer to God. That's the general example I see over and over again in Scripture. Prayer is, I'm expressing my prayers to God. When you read the book of Psalms, which is a book of prayer, it's literally a prayer book. How often does God interrupt and speak back to the psalmist, right? Like that's just not the example we're given in the Lord's prayer that you spoke of. This doesn't assume any sort of special moment of inspiration and revelation coming. All that being said, in my own personal prayer life, I have had many times and it's not like every time. It's not the norm, but I've had many times, like I don't expect it every time I pray, where I do feel like the Lord ministers to me, communicates to me, uh, changes my my mind, my heart on an issue immediately when I start praying. I've had that happen so many times that I, I look forward to that. Now, I'm not saying that that's God speaking to me, like God told me this, because oftentimes it's more like a realignment of my heart on an issue, on a topic. Um, I have it many times though where I pray for wisdom um, about an issue. I'm like, Lord, please give me wisdom on this issue. In the middle of praying, boom, I know what to do. Like I have clarity that I didn't have before. So I'm open to God speaking to me and communicating to me in whatever fashion, but I want to be very hesitant to put too much weight on it because what I thought of while I was praying could be what I thought of while I was praying. It could also be the Lord speaking to me. And unless I know clearly it was God, I'm not going to put too much weight on that because I don't want to presume anything, right? Like I, I just want to be humble about this stuff. So yeah, um, uh, if you are laboring as a Christian under the expectation that your prayer life will experience a sensation on a regular basis that God is speaking to you, I feel like you're just going to get discouraged in your prayers because I think that some of the beauty of prayer is the faith that God hears you. And if that faith that God hears you depends on you getting a feeling in the middle of your prayer, that's just going to undermine your prayer life. Be ready to pray as a monologue. And if you're not capable of doing that, you're gonna your prayer life's gonna be hindered majorly, I think. Um, yeah. All right, Leslie Johnson says, is it necessary to ask your church to remove your name from its records if you're leaving due to false teachings and beliefs? I wonder if that's what God means when he says, come out of her. Um, when he says, okay, that phrase, come out of her, let's talk about that briefly, then we'll go back to the, um, uh, to, the uh, to the rest of the question, the first part of the question. Um, um, da, 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 da. there's a couple places I can think of. One is in, is it first Corinthians seven, um, uh, revelation 18 though. Here's one of them. I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you part take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Um, the idea here of coming out, it feels like it's a throwback to Exodus about literally physically departing. So it's not about names on roles. It's not about whether you're on a list somewhere. It's about literally physically leaving and getting away from the the sinful crowd uh, that's participating in great wickedness at the time. Um, I no longer belong to this group. Now that could can you know could go with taking your name off a list. That's fine, but I don't think it's like required. Now on the other hand, say you're a Mormon. Um, the Mormon Church 
it 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 looks good for them the more the more numbers they have in the church. And when you leave Mormonism and you stop attending and you could tell you could tell your bishop that you're no longer a Mormon, you could tell your family, you can you could start a anti-Mormon YouTube channel, they are not going to take you off the list. Like they're still going to count you as a Mormon. They're still going to, and when they give their numbers out to the world, like how's, here's how many Mormons there are, they're still going to count you. You have to actually write a letter that says, hey, I want to officially be taken off. And then they will often, or at least they used to do it more often. I don't I feel like they're doing it less now from just from what I've heard from people. They'll send people out to your house to visit you and have like a talk. And the talk isn't meant to bully you, but, but they're meant to like probably, hey, what happened? And maybe try to talk you back in. And that can be very intimidating for people. So many people have just silently left. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses will will um, also, um, I, I think it's a good idea if you can get up the courage to do it, to, to have your name released. I think it's taken off that role because that's actually an, not even a Church of Christ, right? Jehovah's Witnesses too, I think it's good to officially break off. But often, often it seems strategically to be better to just fade away. And many former Jehovah's Witnesses will just fade away. They won't actually publicly say they're not JWs anymore because that may cause shunning and I mean, within 20 minutes, everybody in your congregation is getting phone calls and they're being told. So that could cause problems. And of course, that's a challenging thing to work through for people. Um, let's say, though, that you were, you were going to a Presbyterian church and then you moved over and you went to like a Baptist church. You felt like they were getting a little off. Some things that you think were false teachings, but you wouldn't say were like compromising the very gospel itself. I, I just, I don't know. I don't know how much it matters. Um, but then I don't really have a, a strong membership background, so maybe... Maybe I'm just being weird. <laughs> yeah, so I, I would say it's secondary, though, uh, overall. Number 11, Mallory Fuger, or Fuger uh, says, 1 Kings 13, what are we supposed to learn from this passage? It seems as though the prophet lied to the man of God, tricking him so that he wouldn't stay the course. Why lead him into this trap? All right, this is a very strange passage. 1 Kings 13 has to do with a... I'm just going to read a big section of scripture here, and then I'll briefly summarize maybe a couple things we can learn from this passage um okay behold a man of god came out of judah by the word of the lord to bethel by the way he's going to get eaten by a lion by the end of this so you might want to pay attention there's a man of god he's not given a name we don't know his name jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings and the man cried against the altar by the word of the lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you. And human bones shall be burned on you. So it's a proclamation of judgment that's going to be happening. Uh, and he, he's not, they're not going to be human sacrifices. They're poetic terms that just refer to, um, uh, you're, they're going to be slain in the middle of this rebellion spiritual rebellion and he gave a sign the same day saying this is the sign that the lord has spoken behold the altar shall be torn down and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out and when the king heard the saying of the man of god which he cried against the altar at bethel jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar saying seize him and his hand which he stretched out against him dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself the altar also was torn down and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord and the king's hand was restored to him and became as it was before. Okay, so check this out. Like the man of God is like flying high at the moment. He came and he proclaimed this message about to these rebellious people. They tried to seize him and God himself defended him. The man's hand withers and then 
who's praying for the guy to be healed? The man of God. He he is definitely flying high, right? This is a guy who's serving the Lord, doing it right, and he's feeling good. Okay, verse 7. And the king said to the man of God, come home with me and refresh yourself and I will give you a reward. And here's where the story changes. And the man of God said to the king, if you give me half your house, I will not go in with you and I will not eat your eat bread or drink water in this place. For so was it commanded me by the word of the Lord saying, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way you came. So the idea is that that God, for some reason, is like, I don't want you partaking in any way with what they're doing. What they're doing so rebellious against me that you will only proclaim judgment. This is my understanding of it, okay? Mike, Mike's understanding. You'll proclaim judgment to them, but you won't eat their food. You won't spend time with them. You won't fellowship with them. I don't even want them... Um, I don't want you having any part with them. It's like saying, I'm not part of you. This is the rebellion. The rebellion, not just the, the splitting of Israel, but the rebellion against God himself as they have a false altar. And verse 10, so he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. Okay, so he's doing right. He rejected. He's like, you can give me anything you want. I'm not going to do it. But here's where it goes bad. Now, an old prophet lived in Bethel and his sons came and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. Now, what does the guy know? He knows all that he did, which includes that he's not supposed to eat or hang out or stay in the land. Uh, they also told to their father the words that he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, which way did he go? Old prophet doesn't mean good prophet. <laughs> he's not necessarily a good guy. He's an old prophet. There's various prophets. Some are good, some are bad. Verse 12. And their father said to them, which way did he go? And his son showed him the way that the man of God who came from Judah had gone. And he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him and he mounted it and he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. Why is he there? Look, he's there to trick the man. He is there to lie to the man because he wants to hurt him because um, this prophet represents the, the spiritual rebellion, this this old prophet, spiritual rebellion against God, and he wants to take this guy down. How's he going to take him down? God's defending him. He's going to try to talk him into rebelling against God, to going against God's word. And there's our lesson. Let's read on though. Verse 16, and he said, I may not return with you or go in with you, neither will I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by the way that you came. This reminds me of Jesus's temptation because here's what comes next. And he said to him, I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord saying, bring him back with you into your house that he may eat your bread, eat bread and drink water. Now that's a lie. It says it right here, but he lied to him. He lied to him. He pretended to have a revelation he didn't have. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. And as they sat at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried to the man of God who came from Judah, thus says the Lord, because you've disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the command of God that, that the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, eat no bread and drink no water. Your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. And after he'd eaten bread and drunk, he saddled the donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. And as he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the road and the donkey stood beside it. The lion also stood beside the body. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road and the lion standing by the body. And they came and told it to this in the city where the old prophet lived. Um, 
I should read more here. We're almost done. Uh, and when the prophet who had brought him back from the way of uh, heard of it, he said, it is the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him according to the word that the Lord spoke to him. And he said this to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it. And he went and found his body thrown in the road and the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. The lion had not eaten the body or torn the donkey. That's interesting. The lion didn't touch him. And the prophet took the body of the man of God and laid it on the on the donkey and brought it back to the city to mourn and to bury him. And he laid the body in his own grave and they mourned over him saying, Alas, my brother. Alas, my brother. After he had buried him, he said to his sons, When I die, bury me in the grave which the man of, in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying that he called out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places that are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. Now, here's the thing. Tons of stuff here, and I'm not going to cover it all, obviously, really quickly. Um, you say, what are we supposed to learn from this passage? I think there's plenty of lessons. Um, you go with what you know God told you, not with someone else, with what someone else says God told them. Why is that a big deal? Because this is what we see over and over. Special little private revelations that we don't find in the clear teachings of Scripture, right? The things we know God said that are used to lead people astray. There's plenty of people out there. The false teaching is always present. And it might be like, well, I had a vision and I had an angel and I, I know God spoke to me. I'm a prophet. I don't even care if you're a real prophet. Look, if you're giving me directions against the word of God, I'm not going to go with you. I'm not going to do what you say. I'm going to follow what I know God said. And that includes if God gave you some, truly God gave you some sort of private revelation, you should follow that and listen to that and not what word of mouth comes from someone else. But scripture is the thing we know God said. We know it. So we're going to go with that above all else. Other things, um, it seems as though this prophet, this old prophet, he didn't believe this guy. Um, that's what it looks like to me. So he tested him. Oh, no, God spoke to me. He's testing him. He's lying to him to test him. And then when the guy dies and he sees the lion not eating the body and the donkey, and he's like, wow, God's really with, was really with this man of God. And he feels guilty. And that's when he says, alas, my brother, like you were a real prophet. And then he realizes perhaps that he was the false prophet. And um, I think he's got all kinds of issues going on that you could talk about. And maybe, maybe the self-deception of, of those who, they think they're good teachers, they think they're right teachers of the word of God, they think they have right religion, right truths, and they suddenly realize that they're wrong. Um, but the reason why I compare this to the temptation of Jesus is because Satan was unable to twist the words of God to get Jesus to, be, to betray and go against the will of God. So that's kind of interesting as well. So there's some things we can learn. Um, yeah, the, the lion not eating the donkey and not eating the man, just killing him and not eating him. That was like evidence to this old prophet that he was speaking the word of God, which means this old prophet must have a lot of deception, which again goes on to, in a bigger picture in scripture, how northern Israel was just perpetually in spiritual deception. All right, we'll go to the next one. Jonathan uh, Susupira, I sorry, I probably pronounced your name wrong. Uh, it says, will all the believers partake of the first resurrection or only those who've been beheaded in the name of Christ? And you quote Revelation tw uh, 20 verse 4. I'll just read the verse briefly. Uh, then I saw thrones and seated on them were, the, were those uh, to... To whom the authority to judge was committed, also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed 
And holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Okay, so um, we're all kings and priests, according to Peter. These are terms, we all are going to be partaking in the resurrection. So these terms here, sharing in this resurrection, it sounds like the kind of thing all of us will enjoy. Um, so in Revelation 20, verse 4, he specifically mentions those who've been beheaded, those who do not worship the beast or its image. They're specifically mentioned as coming to life because earlier in Revelation, they were specifically mentioned as being persecuted and killed at that time. I don't, however, see an only, like only those who died in this persecution are part of the first resurrection, but rather they are part of the first resurrection. And then you can ask, well, who's the rest of the dead? The rest of the dead doesn't mean other Christians who just weren't killed in the tribulation period. But I think the rest of the dead here is referring to the, the unsaved dead. Because later on, right, when the thousand years are ended, Satan's released, all this stuff happens. As you read on in Revelation, then you're going to find there's, an, there's another resurrection, a second resurrection for the, um, the unsaved dead. They're brought back for judgment. So, yeah, I would, I would think this, what happens is discussing those who are beheaded, but it would apply to others as well. It's just not only them. It's going to be anybody who's saved. That's my understanding. I could be wrong. It is the book of Revelation after all. <laughs> all right, number 13. Billy Fairy Princess says, can you please explain Matthew 27 verses 51 through 53, hoping to get some clarity of the holy people raised to life. Where did they go? Did they die again? I have so many questions. You, me, and everybody has questions about this passage. And the reason is because this is the only place in the Bible that we really have discussion about, at least that, that immediately comes to mind. Matthew 27, 51, and behold, this is this is when Jesus dies. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. I actually just, just taught about that. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs and notice the time after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. That's it. They're not brought up again. So bodies of the saints who'd fallen were raised. Now some, okay, this is this is this is a, in my opinion, an out there interpretation. But there are, but it's growing in popularity because things have trends. It's in a trend right now. Is that this um, is somehow like this is going to bug you, just like it bothers me. Uh, this is this is acceptable. Um, uh, what's called a literary device, what they call a literary device. And the idea is that Matthew's saying something that didn't actually happen, but everybody knows he's just kind of like saying it and you didn't really have him, but it was like just to emphasize the greatness of the resurrection of Christ. Um, I don't like that view. I'm not going to spend much time on it here. I reject it. Okay. Here's what I think is going on. Uh, the tombs are opened. Many bodies of the saints. How many? We don't know. It could have been seven. It, we don't know. It, it could have been a hundred. We don't know. Right. But I'm going to guess it was on the lower end because we're not reading about this in other places. The other gospels don't mention this at all. There's all kinds of crazy events that happen in the life of Christ that none of the gospels mention. Um, I'm not worried that the other gospels don't specifically highlight this. Um, okay. They'd fallen asleep. They were raised. The next question is, when did it happen? So the tombs were opened. That happened during the earthquake at Jesus's death. But, verse 53, they came out of the tombs after his resurrection and went to the holy city and appeared to many. So I think that um, this next sentence in the end of verse 52 through 53 is referring to after the resurrection of Christ. So Jesus, 
dies, the tombs are cracked open. The idea is that death is being broken. Um, that's my interpretation there. And then after Jesus's resurrection, we actually have some number, like I said, it could be eight. I don't know. Some number of these guys actually come back and they, they come to life and they go into the city. They're saints who had fallen asleep. Now, when you say saints, these could be, here's options. We don't know the answers here. These could be like Old Testament saints, or they could just be people who've died in the past few years. They went and were seen by their families. But then how long did they live? Uh, did they die again at a later date? Were they raised like Lazarus where they just went and lived the rest of their lives? Maybe they were just very recently fallen. Maybe there were people who had died in the past like six months. I don't know the answers to these questions. And uh, Jesus raised several people from the dead and we don't hear a lot about them. We just have little tiny stories about them. So it's possible that it was people who very recently died or someone who died long ago. But if they're going to go back into the city and they appear to people, um, seems like they'd have to be recognizable for that to matter to people as opposed to a stranger showing up and be like, I am so-and-so, right? Like that might not have as much impact. So I'm going to guess they were people who died recently. Did they die again? Like Lazarus, he just lived the rest of his life and died again. He doesn't show up much after that. He just, the big moment happened. And after that, it's like, well, there he is, you know. Uh, plenty of people would just be like, well, they, they didn't really die. It was a trick. And just like they did with, with Jesus. He uh, he was stolen, it'll say something. Um, yeah, so let me read your question again and make sure I didn't miss something here. Um, where did they go? They went into the city. After that, we don't know. Did they die again? I don't know. If Lazarus is our model, they probably just lived a normal life after that and died again. You could suggest they ascended or they departed or they went off and did something else. But I think we're adding a lot. I'm just going to guess that they just lived a normal life after that. And you have so many questions. Yes, there's a lot of questions left, but that's all I got. <laughs> Let's go to number 14. Number 14 is from Koyo, who said, or Koyo, who says, do you believe in divine simplicity? If so, how do you reconcile it with the Trinity? Um, as I understand this, okay, divine simplicity is a very complicated, uh, challenging philosophical concept of God. And the idea is that God is ultimately simple. They'll say he's not made up of parts, but even that language to me is really unhelpful in, in what they're trying to say here. For me personally, I'm like, that doesn't help me. Um, the part of divine simplicity that gets a lot of people, as I understand it, look, I'm not a philosopher. I care about these things. I even read about these things. So I'm gonna give you my best summary without even five minutes to prep, okay. Um, but the part that I think will cause people pause about divine simplicity isn't just saying God is one. Okay, we all believe God is one. That's not just saying that. It's saying more than that. I mean, maybe they define one a special way at that point, but it's saying more than that. They're saying that God, um, in addition to that, the part that I would have a beef with, God is doesn't really get impacted by, like, say, events and, and emotions the way that we do. So that he's sort of... The way it sounds to me, it sounds to me like when the Bible says God's God's angry or God's loves or God was grieved, like that that didn't really happen. These are just terms describing, you know, how God's going to respond to the people, but it doesn't really have a real world impact. I think that that doesn't seem to work. Um, how do you reconcile divine simplicity with the Trinity? Um I don't know how they would do that. I'm sure there's philosophers that have, you know, weighed this out and worked this out. There's brilliant men that believe in divine simplicity. I think it's a weird theory and a strange theory, and it comes from medieval theologians, in my opinion, and not. And, and I think that medieval theologians, like, I don't want to carry their baggage. <laughs> I want scripture, and I don't want to get 
bogged down in that stuff. Um, I know I'm causing people who hold divine simplicity to punch the ceiling, but so does everybody who talks against it, right? You're always going to punch the ceiling when anybody who doesn't hold to it talks about it. That's just what's going to happen. So yeah, um, I don't believe it. I don't hold to it. I don't think that it threatens anything about the doctrine of God to reject divine simplicity. All right. Number 15, Rachel Anderson says a lot of believers seem to believe the church was being persecuted by being required to wear masks, meet in smaller groups, etc. Was a spiritual battle being waged in the COVID mandates? Um, let me just tell you how Rachel, how I understand spiritual battles. Um, I think Satan uses whatever he can. Now, even if the COVID I hope people will hear what I'm saying here. Even if the decisions are right to meet in smaller groups, to wear masks, to, it's not the masks, the thing that really is the issue here, but it's the idea of meeting in smaller groups or not meeting in, on a normal Sunday service gathering. Even if that was the right decision to make for medical safety, of course, Satan's going to use this to try to undermine the church. Like you're not gathering together for fellowship and worship. Like, of course, there's going to be a spiritual battle in the middle of that. It's going to be there. And that's where I would want to focus is this will be a battle because we're not meeting. Now, is it persecution? Um, well, in some places it was. I mean, in some places, I'm, I think it's pretty obvious because they were allowing people to gather in non-church settings that were at least as potentially hazardous medically as a church setting would be, if not more. So in some places it was. In other places, it seems like it wasn't, like it was more of a blanket thing. And maybe some would say, well, they were overreacting. Like, I'm not going to comment on that because I, I don't know. Um, so I, I don't have a comment on that. But I do want to say this, like, yes, if the treat, if the church is being treated with an imbalance, then I would think that was more, that was in the direction of persecution. Church is being restricted more so than a casino or something like that was locally around here. Um, okay, I would, I would say, yeah, this looks like a type of persecution, whether it's intentional or not, that's the effect, an imbalanced treatment of the church um if on the other hand it was just a blanket nobody's gathering it's we, we do have fair rules in the sense that it's they're applied, they're applied equally i'd say look that may not be persecution but you know what it's going to do it's going to cause a spiritual battle in the churches and in the people in the lives of christians and in in the world as well because we are the salt so that's kind of how i view that i don't really know how to give it a black and white answer um maria laura garcia says Dear Pastor Mike, I see others being used by God and want to be used too. And because of this, I often struggle with envy, jealousy, jealousy and comparison. How would you encourage me and help me grow past this sin? Um, first off, Maria, um, I applaud you for sharing openly about this. Like, that's great. Like, the openness is great. Like, be encouraged by that. Like, I don't, I'm not looking weird at you or thinking weird things about you at all. I think plenty of people deal with this. I've had people come up to me who I thought were... I looked up to and I thought were godly leaders and then had them tell me later, like, yeah, I was, I was jealous of you for what this or that reason. And I remember being like, they were jealous of me. Like I always just looked up to them. I always just thought so greatly of them. I don't, that's so weird to me, you know? Well, we're humans. We are humans. Let me give you a, a scripture that sort of applies to this. Hold on. My phone's ringing. Okay, just making sure that it wasn't like an emergency on the on the stream. Um, here we go. This is my advice. Second um, Corinthians ten verse twelve. This is Paul the apostle, and he's kind of talking about himself and his calling. And some people are saying he's not really called, and all this kind of stuff, and they're comparing. 
He says, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. This is something Paul's like, even though I'm here trying to prove to you my apostleship because I just want to minister to you. I'm not trying to like make myself look like something big. I just want to minister to you guys. And you've been told that I'm not a real apostle and I'm somehow fake or whatever. So he's dealing with that, but he has a limit. He goes, I won't even classify. I won't, I won't do this thing. I won't compare myself to those who commend themselves. These, these other people that are trying to like sort of um, compete with Paul and take his leadership role in other people's lives. He says, but when they, and this is the part I love, and it's worded strangely, but I, I think it's worded perfectly. When they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Let me give it to you. Here's King, New King James. This is the version that I kind of like have learned much of the Bible in. And it says um, um, in verse 12, for we do not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves amongst themselves, among themselves are not wise. That's my counsel to you, Maria. The solution will be when you stop comparing when you can look at someone else and you can appreciate what they're doing, you could see faults and you could see wonderful skills and you can appreciate their value in the kingdom, but you never then hold yourself up next to them for comparison. It just doesn't happen. That is super important. Like when I look, I'm one of the pastors at my church. I never hold myself in my head up next to other pastors to like measure by them or them measure by me each other. That is unwise. And that is going to cause all kinds of havoc. So don't measure yourself by others. I like what the Psalm says, how it's like, I would just be delighted to be a doorkeeper in the house of God. Because I see, I have a place in the kingdom of Christ. I am a child of God and I get to serve him. What more is there? Why am I comparing? Why am I looking at that? Why am I worried about like, it? doesn't make any sense, but I do it, but it doesn't make sense. Don't do it. Don't compare at all. The second you notice you're comparing, stop. And and here's a great self-discipline thing. Confront yourself by thanking God for the good things he's doing in that person. You know, whatever you're jealous about, thank God that the other person has that. This is how you die to yourself. That person's a better speaker than me. Lord, I thank you that they're such a good speaker. I know you're using them in good ways to help bless people's lives. Oh, but man, they're, they're just so stuck up. Lord, I, I pray for them. I, I pray that their pride wouldn't hurt their ministry and that you'd help them. You see, it becomes not about a comparison. You just have love for them and care for them. And it's not about you at all. We can't look at others in light of ourselves. We have to look at them in the light of Christ and not compare to each other. That is going to deal with this envy, jealousy, comparison thing. That would be my encouragement. I hope that some of those words help you. Maria, it's a, it's a, it's a long haul thing because it's a bad habit that we can have and it can take time to develop new patterns. Number 17, Nikki says, my cat died this week. Where did he go? Bless you, your ministry, your family, and your mods. Thank you, thank you, and thanks to my mods who are there helping us out in my always long live streams. Always long. <laughs> Slowly getting longer all the time, it seems. Um, all right, Nikki. Um, I'm a cat person. Well, I'm a, I love cats and dogs. Like, I just, any animal I had, I would love. We just happen to have cats. And, um, and it, it like thoroughly breaks my heart. We've lost a cat a couple years back and just, uh, and it was Mal was a cat and, we, and just, we lost her and that like really was rough. Okay. I'm not going to pretend like it was the loss of a child or something or of, of a human family member, but 
you feel it in a way that's pretty intense and deep. And, and I miss, still miss my cat, to be honest. Um, where did your cat go is the question. I want to say, and there's those who do say this, that you're going to see your, your cat in the future one day. That in the resurrection, in the new heavens and new earth, we will see our, our loved pets. And I'd like to say that. I don't currently think that's accurate, biblically speaking. I could be wrong. My reading, and I have a video that's going to come out on this in a little more detail, probably in like a week or so. I'll put it out where I actually break this down a little bit, a little bit more detail. Um, it's true that in the new heavens and new earth, there are animals. Okay, there's a new, we're not just in heaven forever, but heaven meets earth. We're living on a new earth, a paradise, perfect earth forever. It seems there's animals there. That's what it seems like to me as I'm reading scripture. And there may be things that are uh, allegorical that I've taken too literally. That's possible. But I think that there's animals there. But it, it doesn't say it's the same animals. And that's the part where I'm like, oh, that's sad, you know. Um, I think that when our pets die, they just cease existing. I think we have different types of souls. And that ours is eternal and theirs just ceases to exist. So I, th I think that that's the case. Now, I could be wrong. And I kind of hope I am. Okay, Nikki, but that's what I think scripture teaches. So what do I do then if I don't have that hope of like, I'm going to see that pet again. That pet was so special to me. And people... Who just think, well, it's just a dog or just a cat. Like they don't, they don't, they don't get it. They don't understand. Um, I look to the salve of of the hope of the future where God wipes every tear away, and I love that verse in Revelation that says that God will wipe every tear away. And let's think about that just for a second. It's not happening yet, okay? But there's a day when He wipes every tear away, and I don't think He literally comes up and starts wiping your tears because I'll tell you what, if I'm crying and sobbing and you wipe my tears, I don't feel better. I think what it means is that God wipes away the reasons we have for crying because we now have his comfort in such a way that we're okay with the brokenness of the past. I really believe this is part of the heaven experience. We are now okay with the brokenness and the loss we've experienced in the past because now we've, we've seen the fullness of what God did with it. We have his comforts, we have his very presence, and now we're okay. I think there is a great, deep understanding we have in the future that gives us hope and peace and courage and comfort where we, we, we say, look, I'm going to keep mourning about the loss of loved ones, um, lost family members who pass away, uh, pets that die. I'm going to be mourning that loss forever until he wipes every tear away. And there is his comforts. And I do believe that's coming. Number 18, Tiffany Jensen says, do you have any recommendations for studying other religions and how to approach others with the intention to evangelize? I'm particularly interested in Islam. Also, cat cam. I know there's been no cat cam for quite a while. I'll just mention, like, cats go through seasons and, like, for some reason, my cat is in a season where she just doesn't come and sit next to me like she used to. And uh, maybe maybe that'll start up again. They just go through seasons. So I don't, I'm not, it's not on purpose. You know, Moxie used to go sit there and she, she's fine. She's doing good. So, yeah. Um, Here's a cat video for you. <laughs> there she is. Um, and her hair is actually longer now. We had it trimmed because cat issues. But um, all right. So let me go back to the question. The um, Studying other religions, I, I think it's individual. I think the, the sources are individual. For Islam, I would recommend that you read the Quran. I really, if you're going to witness to people who are Islamic, I recommend you read the Quran yourself. Um, it's difficult to read because the chapters are organized so strangely. It doesn't flow. There's no flow of story in the Quran in anywhere. 
um, I mean, not consistently. And the chapters, for the for the most part, almost all the chapters are literally arranged not in the order they were written, but from longest to shortest. Imagine if you took the Bible and rearranged the chapters from longest to shortest. Yeah, that would be confusing. <laughs> so the Quran's pretty confusing. But you will get insights as you read it. But there's a lot more of the Hadith, that kind of thing. Um, uh, I know David Wood has tons of interesting content on Islam. His stuff is pretty abrasive, but that's intentional. Um, and he thinks that that's effective against dealing with an outreach. But let me say this. Making a video online is not the same as having a conversation with a friend. Be aware of that. And I wouldn't necessarily treat the two the same way. Um, but yeah, I know. I mean, David Wood is a great resource for stuff on Islam content on Islam and he's dealing with debates and going back and forth that sort of thing you could also look at Nabil Qureshi's um, book uh, Seeking Allah Finding Jesus that would be a fantastic book because here's an example of what he does he doesn't just say here's the Trinity because every every Muslim is going to be really against the doctrine of the Trinity he gives you his journey being a Muslim and slowly coming to understand the doctrine of the Trinity and he explains it in a way that made sense to him going from Islam to Christianity so I would check out definitely Nabil Qureshi's book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. That would be a great resource as well. When you look for understanding these different religions, um, you want to look for resources that seem to deeply understand them, but also don't sugarcoat the differences. Like they're, they deeply understand it, so they're not just like demonizing everything about it. Every single thing about it's wrong. There's compassion that's there. There's a depth of understanding, but there's a, a truth of, look, there is an exclusivity in Christ and this group is excluding people through their teachings. Like, they're going to confront that. All right, number 19. Holy child of God says, Dear Mike, how can you explain Isaiah 66? Uh, I may not be able to. Verses 22 and 23 to be understood alongside Revelation 11:19. The 10 words are in the ark currently. If Colossians 2.16 speaks of the weekly Sabbath being abolished. Okay, some of these questions when I get them like this, there's nothing wrong with your question like in and of itself. For me, you know, here's three verses. You've obviously spent a lot of time on it. I'm like just hearing it for the first time, this thing. Um, and I'm not sure if I'm following. So let's take a stab at it. We're looking at Isaiah chapter 66, verses 22 and 23. And we'll see. Um, this may be fruitless, but I'm going to do my best. For as the new heavens and new earth, which I will make before me, uh, which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord. So shall your descendants and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to me to worship before me, says the Lord. Okay, so I think what you're getting at here is the Sabbath focus. Okay, there's a here's a description in Isaiah of a new heavens and new earth. And there's a description of everybody in the world coming and worshiping God on the new moons, which seems to speak of Jewish festivals, and on the Sabbath, which speaks of the Sabbath, right? So there seems to be Sabbath worship and, and feast, or at least new moon of observance going on. Then we have, and I'm probably not going to, I'm just going to confess right now that I'm probably not going to help you guys. This is, in my video on end times views, like six different Christian end times views, this is one of the challenging, you know, passages for my view, for the view that I lean towards, um, which is the, um, uh, progressive dispensational <laughs> premillennial all right but not progressive in the bad sense it's a, it's a different meaning here all right so revelation eleven nineteen says uh then the temple of god was open in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple and there were thundering lightnings noises thunderings and earthquake and great hail now this isn't really about the isaiah passage anymore 
Um, this is talking about the temple of God in heaven and the ark is seen in his temple. You're saying, hey, I'm going to read your question again. How do you explain Isaiah to be understood alongside Revelation, this verse? The 10 words are in the ark currently. But th this is, I mean, this is the ark of the covenant in heaven. This is not the physical building on earth. This is something different. This is a vision. This is a presentation of like a heavenly temple. Okay, this is a little different. Um, anyway, so they say, then you go on to say, if Colossians 2.16 speaks of the weekly Sabbath being abolished. All right, let no one judge you in food or drink or in regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come with the substances of Christ. Okay, well, the easiest way to reconcile all of this is to say, oh, in the new heavens and new earth, there'll be new moons and there'll be Sabbaths and we'll be, we'll be observing them. But currently... We're not in the new heavens and new earth. And as the gospel goes out to the nations, we do not require anyone to observe the Sabbath, anyone to observe the feasts. And it's wrong to judge people in regards to those things. That would be the easiest way to resolve them is to say that these are different different time periods and God's working differently with different people in those times. Um, the challenging thing is this. And here's the part where I don't, I don't know what to answer. This passage in Isaiah 66, while it talks about a new heaven and new earth, a lot of the stuff in this passage seems to refer to what I would consider the millennium. And in the millennium, I do think that there's a new temple that's built and that people are coming and they're to commemorate, commemorate, not to get saved, but to, to remember and to be like an illustration of what God has done through time. There's going to be sacrifices and Sabbaths and stuff like that. Um, but again, I think that's a controversial view, so I'm not going to try to put too much on it for you guys. You're not, you're not beholden to that view. That's just what I tend to think based on what I've read. All right, last question for today. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm not able to help you more with the last one, but Samuel George says, I've studied the evidence for Christianity and it's amazing, but I struggle with doubts of what if I'm wrong? Does this affect my salvation? Will God help me? Love your channel. Thank you, Pastor Mike. I'm glad you love the channel, Samuel, and I'm really glad you've studied the evidence for Christianity and you think it's amazing. Let me talk to you about how annoying the phrase, what if you're wrong, actually is. Um, there's a phrase I'll borrow from, from many others um, who use the same phrase here, which is, questions aren't arguments. I think the first person I heard use this phrase regularly was Cameron Bertuzzi, but questions aren't arguments. The reason why this is a fruitful thing to say is because it reminds you that simply asking what if you're wrong does not make it more likely that you're wrong. It doesn't. I'm married to Allison. That's my wife. We're married. What if you're wrong, Mike? If I'm wrong, then I'm living with a woman I'm not married to. That's a pretty big deal. But you asking the question doesn't make it more likely that I'm wrong. Like, I'm still married to her. I have no reason to doubt that. I have every bit of confidence about it. So let me say this. If the evidence for Christianity is on this side, and on the other side, all you have is, what if you're wrong? That gives you zero reason to doubt the evidence as it's pointing you to Christ. It means nothing. What if you're wrong is the most empty and cheap throwaway doubt-causing statement in existence. And where it's helpful is a cost analysis. If I'm wrong, here's the cost. That's helpful. Okay, I want to know this. I'm going to invest this money in the stock market. If I'm right, I'm going to make a bunch of money. And if and what if you're wrong? Oh, well, then I'm going to lose a bunch of money. Okay, so let me just evaluate. Am I right here? It shows you the importance of an issue. And here, the, the issues are important. If you, Samuel, if you're right about Christ, 
You have eternal glories in heaven. If you're wrong about Christ, if say atheism is true, if that's your alternative, you just see, you cease to exist. Okay, that's the what if you're wrong, you cease to exist. If the uh, alternative is, if because if, if Christianity is wrong, something else is true. So if atheism is true, you cease to exist. Okay, that's actually not that big of a cost. Um, comparison right there. So then Pascal's wager pushes you over to say, well, then you better just stay with Christ. Um, but, and, and I do think Pascal's wager, smartly and rightly understood, is actually pretty impressive. Um, you just never hear it smartly and rightly understood when, when people are talking about it online. And um, let's say that the alternative is like, say, Jehovah's Witnesses. Oh, well, then if I'm wrong and Jehovah's Witnesses are right, then I'm going to be out. I'm going to be, I'm going to be destroyed in Armageddon. That's a big deal. I'm going to be destroyed. But I have zero reason to think they're right. Like I, all the evidence is for, is for Christianity. Okay. What if, um, you know, you name it, you name it. What if this other thing's right? So then you, so what you do is you say, here's the cost. If I'm wrong, this is going to happen, but that's not the evidence. Then you weigh the evidence. Is there evidence to support that other view? And if the evidence is all with Christianity, then the, what if you're wrong statement is merely creating what we call psychological doubt. Samuel, psychological doubt is like irrational fear. Psychological doubt existing shouldn't disturb you. I mean, it bothers you, it annoys you, but it shouldn't disturb you. Just like irrational fear. If you have an irrational fear of like bottled water, that's just something you have to work through. Like, but it, it doesn't make bottled water dangerous. I may have an irrational fear of what if I'm wrong, but that doesn't make me wrong. Like this is just something I have to process and work through. Psychological doubt, how do you know it's purely psychological and it's not rational doubt, like good reasons for strong doubt where the evidence is like against me is because you can't put a name on it. It's just what if, what if, what if you're wrong? Well, what if I'm right? And if that balances it out, then you should ignore it altogether. So does it affect your salvation? No, you struggle with doubts, that's totally okay. One of the best places in scripture to go is um, where Jesus tells the man, um, you know, anything's possible for him who believes. And he says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. He believed and didn't believe at the same time. And he chose, I'll, I, I choose to believe, Lord, but help this unbelief that's in me. And then Jesus brought healing, which implies what? That if you're on the fence between belief and unbelief and you, by your will, you say, but I choose faith. I choose to trust you. That's good enough. So it does not threaten your salvation. And uh, will God help you? Yes. In fact, I would suggest from personal experience, you grow a lot through going through these times. The time of psychological doubt, you grow. You learn what trust really is. Because faith, yes, faith can, it can be evidence-based, can be built lots, on lots of good evidence. But in there is a simple decision to personally trust yourself to Christ. Do you trust Jesus? And you learn that not just through evidential confidence, but through a decision that you make. And sometimes the psychological doubt is what brings you to that decision point. And I think that that can be a good thing. Uh, even though I hate it and you hate it, it can grow us a lot. If it wasn't for the doubt I've had as a Christian, I would be a much more immature Christian. I know because I know me, like I've been down that road. And I went through doubts where I just was like, Lord, take it away, take it away, take it away, praying, 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 praying. And instead it was decisions to trust the Lord over and over again. I couldn't, I didn't have good evidence against what I believed, but I still felt psychological doubt. And um, it's much better now, much better now. But it just, it was just sticking with the long haul trusting the Lord. So I, I hope that that is helpful to you, Samuel. Um, if you're, if you have any more questions about that, look up my 
my video on Psalm 73, and I'll put a link to it as well below, or maybe I'll put an end screen up here at some point. Um, Psalm 73, and that's dealing with doubt, dealing with doubt. And I speak a lot from my own personal experience, but also Psalm 73 is very much about that. So um, I hope that blesses you guys. Thank you guys for joining me. I will not be with you Monday. Monday, I do not have a live stream on this channel, but I, I'm going to be doing a stream something what am i i'm doing something maybe it's recorded i don't remember anymore i don't know what's going on but um yeah for the next few weeks i don't have much going on on mondays the next thing in the mark series is going to be july uh, after the fourth of july so it's, no it's a day after a week and a day after the fourth of july so it's the 12th <laughs> i can do math all right that's it take care um appreciate you guys appreciate the the fact that you show up and I hope this does help you learn to think biblically. If there's something that was a real blessing to you, maybe let me know in the comments, just what ministered to you. And if you just can't get enough, check out my Psalm 73 video. I'll put a link to it shortly.